as we walk through the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, go ahead and turn with me there. Uh, if you do not have a Bible of your own, usually up under one of the seats in front of you or uh, one of the seats under you has a Bible that is burgundy or brown. And uh, if you'll just grab one of those, uh, you'll be on page 633. 633. Uh, while you're turning there, I just wanted to share with you, uh, a few years ago I was able to go to Bali, Indonesia. It was my fourth time in going, and uh, man, just uh, every time I go, I've been blessed by uh, the opportunity to share the gospel and to, to meet people that I would never have met were it not for uh, me going and sharing the good news. So I'm thankful that I was able, have been able to do that and was able to go a few years ago. The one of the things that was different in going a few years ago from the rest of the time is that um, usually in, in Bali, it's very interesting because in Denpasar, which is the capital of Bali, Indonesia, um, there, there's a lot of um, Western influence. Uh, a lot of people go there to surf and uh, to hang out and to, to meet other people. A lot of Australians and Americans go there for its, uh, for its scene. It uh, has, a, has a really, uh, really cool, um, you know, just beaches and just beautiful beaches and uh, really crisp blue water. So it's a great place to go and surf and to hang out. And so uh, there's just a lot there. But when you get away from Denpasar, uh, it's actually a, a very uh, poor country. Uh, in, uh, in Bali. It uh, averages about a, a dollar a day uh, is what they average uh, as, as far as their wages when you get outside of Denpasar. And so, um, so we had the privilege uh, this one time to go to this past time that I went to go up to a village that was up in the mountains. And uh, there's a very few distinct things that happened um, when I was up in this village. Uh, one was it was the hottest place I've ever been in my life. It was literally 100 degrees, that was the temperature, with 100% humidity. I mean, it was incredibly hot. It was incredibly hot. And as, uh, outside of being in Nevada, Las Vegas this past summer, uh, camping there for a little bit, like, that's, that's, that was, uh, that's the hottest place I've been in the U.S., but that is the hottest place I have ever been. So we go up to this village, and I just remember how hot it was. I mean, there's no breeze, no nothing, even though we're on a mountain. It was exceptionally hot. But I remember as we, as we were coming in, we were driving up, and we get out of our cars, the people in the village were just so excited to see us, uh, namely because... We were Americans. They had never seen Americans. They had never traveled down the mountain to Denpasar, about three hours away. Uh, down the mountain, there was no mode of transportation for them to get to the like main, to the capital city of Denpasar in Bali. And so they had really never seen an American. But I remember this one lady. Um, she, was, she was an older lady, about 75 years old. And there was a couple things that I remember about her. One was that she came out and was like super excited to see us. Like, I mean, she was overjoyed to see us. The other thing that I remember about her, and it's kind of hard to forget, is that she was topless. Like she just, this was their norm. Like they would just come out as, as you know, even as older lady. They had never, they had never this. That wasn't their thing to to get dressed, you know. And so I just remember going to this remote village, and we weren't there long before one of the guys that was with us was like, "Hey." get her to go put a shirt on because they're not used to this. And so she did. She went and put a shirt on, put it on, and, and uh, that, was, that was better for us. It was a lot less uncomfortable for the guys that were with us. And, uh, and so I was thankful for that. Um, but in that village, as we, as we shared the gospel with these people, I remember her. Like she, she began, she, she started out being joyous that we were there. 
because she had never seen American. She was probably, like I said, 75, 80 years old. And the thing that changed for her was that she became not joyous that we were there as Americans, but they, we were joyous. She was rejoicing that we were there to tell her about Christ. And uh, so she became a, G, a follower of Jesus that day, and uh, along with some of the other people who were in that village. And it was just, a, just an amazing, amazing time, amazing opportunity for us to go and share the good news with a village in a remote part of Bali that was on top of a mountain that you couldn't find if you were... Uh, we hardly found it and we were looking for it, right? And, and, the guy, and our guide kind of knew where to go. And uh, it was just in one of those places where it's just really hard. And, and, and what it reminded me of was that um, there, is, there was no one that is beyond the reach of the gospel. Uh, there was no one that was beyond the reach of the gospel. If I can find myself in Bali, Indonesia, at the top of a mountain, witnessing to, uh, to a village that has never seen Americans, never seen what Western civilization looks like, if we can go there and we can share the gospel and, uh, and, and we can reach those people for the gospel, then there's nowhere that, that God can't go. So the title of my sermon this morning is, No One is Beyond the Reach of the Gospel. And here is the premise. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel, but we must be willing instruments in proclaiming the gospel faithfully in our sending and being sent. So the premise this morning. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel, but we the church must be willing instruments in proclaiming the gospel faithfully in our sending and being sent. So normally what I will do is I will take the passage as we are in Acts chapter 8. We're reading the whole chapter this morning. Uh, normally I would read that and then we'll go back and kind of extrapolate it, bring it out and kind of uh, figure out what it's trying to say to us. Today I'm going to do a little bit different. I'm going to kind of work through uh, the section of this chapter 8 um, as we go. I'm going to read it as we go. So my point, uh, first point this morning, my premise was, you've heard it, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel, but must be willing instruments in proclaiming the gospel faithfully and are sending and being sent. My first point this morning is this. What we see as difficult and disappointing circumstances are oftentimes gateways to growth. What we see as difficult and disappointing circumstances are oftentimes gateways to growth. Verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Now, I'm going to backtrack a minute here. Kind of give you an overview of what's been happening in the book of Acts. Jesus is resurrected. He comes and visits his people, his church. He proclaims to them that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. To all the earth, eventually, the gospel will go. And, uh, and then he ascends into heaven. He leaves these 120 followers behind. They go into an upper room. And they kind of wait on the promised Holy Spirit that will come. And in Acts chapter 2, we see where the Holy Spirit comes. And he, he, uh, he is given to the disciples, the disciples that are there. And they begin to proclaim the good news of who Jesus was. And they begin to proclaim the gospel. And as a result of that, as a result of the preached word... Uh, 
uh, many thousands were saved. And so we, we've kind of come to a culmination of, and we've seen like uh, the church being starting to be established, but also it's starting to affect those Jewish believers, those believers, people who are of Jewish faith and descent, is starting to impose its will on their religion. So this Christianity, this Christian religion, these, these little devout people who are followers of Jesus are starting to, to intercede on our Jewish beliefs, right? And so what happens is persecution begins, starts to begin. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are warned, like a verbal warning of, hey, listen, you need to stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We don't know who He is, but you've got to stop because you're, you're affecting what's going on in our religious culture. And then we get to Acts chapter 5, and because they don't stop, they say, hey, look, we're just, or, uh, we're just ordinary guys, but we have this gospel to proclaim, and we cannot help but proclaim it. We cannot help but tell you about who Jesus is and what He has done. And so then Peter and John, after being warned verbally, they were flocked, right? They were beaten for their faith. And then as we, we get to uh, Stephen... Uh, here in the last, as we, as we saw last week, Acts chapter 7, we see that the persecution is starting to get even more, even, even more extreme as, uh, as, as the gospel is being preached, as people are coming to faith, including Jewish leaders, it says, and many priests were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So it wasn't just affecting those people who were, who were Jews, who were following after God. It was affecting, actually affecting synagogues and religious order as they knew it because Leaders were being saved by Jesus, by the faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so as a result of that, they, they get so angry with Stephen, as Stephen preaches the gospel to them, and he tells them that, hey, you've got it all wrong. You found yourself on the wrong side of history ever since the time of Abraham. So as Abraham went, as, as, as Jacob went, as Moses went, as Joseph has gone in, in the Old Testament Scriptures, as, as believers, you persecuted the prophets that have come before you, and you're also going to find yourself on the wrong side as you persecute Jesus. This is what Stephen proclaims in chapter, Acts chapter 7. And, and as he proclaims this, the people he was preaching to find themselves very angry and upset that they have found themselves on the wrong side of history. Because you think when you're on the right side of history, you can't be wrong, right? Which is exactly what happened to these people. And they decided to stone and kill uh, Stephen. And here was Saul. Very simply says, Saul approved of his execution. So after they had stoned Stephen, after he had died... They laid their garments at the feet of Stephen, and he approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the persecution of Stephen, so we see how things have kind of, they're starting to get more and more extreme from, hey, I'm going to warn you to I'm going to beat you to now we've had a death. Now Saul is ravaging the church and he's starting to scatter the saints that are gathered. 
And there was a, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattering throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now this is interesting because as devout men, um, they, were, they were together, but there was, there was a law that said, if someone is dead, you must bury them within a few hours of their death because they would become unclean. But for those who were stoned, those who were stoned to death, you were not to lament. This was Old Testament Jewish law. You were, you were not to lament over those who were stoned. Why? Because they were guilty. They were found guilty in, in God's eyes. However, look at what happens here. These devout men, they had not just lamentation, they had great lamentation. This means that they, they did not approve of what was happening or what had happened to Stephen, that he had died, that he had suffered in this way. And yet... Saul was in the midst of this ravaging. This says the, the word ravaging here is like a lion devouring its prey. Like Saul was aggressively attacking the church. He was going from house to house and attacking men and women and putting them in prison. Some I'm sure he was leading to death. But yet, in the midst of all of this, something amazing happens. People scattered, and they didn't just stay in Jerusalem. They began to go throughout the regions of, regions of where? Judea and Samaria. What did Jesus promise back in Acts 1 chapter 8? That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where else? Judea, Samaria. These very places that these people are gathering, or scattering, is exactly where Jesus would have the gospel to go. And so what we see as difficult and disappointing circumstances are oftentimes gateways to growth. So the question here is, do you think the early Christians would have thought it easier to remain a Jew and not suffer persecution in this way? Like they could have easily claimed, hey, wait, I'll, I'll, remain, I'll keep my Jewish heritage and I will, I will denounce faith in Christ Jesus. But they didn't do that. There was a large contingent that were scattered among as they were ravaging. They were scattered throughout the regions of, of Judea and Samaria. And we will see that they will continue preaching the word as they go. But what does this mean for us? You see, many times we, we look at our current circumstances. And we ask, God, what are you doing here? I mean, this doesn't make sense. I thought I was doing what you wanted me to do. Is that not what we ask? Like, like God, I'm doing what you want me to do, yet here you are giving me a, a, a trial that I don't know if I can get through. But the truth is, is we don't see what God sees. We don't have all the information that God has. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts Scriptures tells us. So here's what we do. We trust His promises. We as Christians have to trust His promises. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
And then you know what we do as a result of that? You know what we do as a result of trusting God in all of our circumstances? We rest. We rest. We don't stress over what happens next. We don't stress over something that we can't even control. We rest. Because in those moments, when we don't understand God is using our circumstances to actually grow us, I mean, if you need examples of God taking people and putting them through trials in order to grow them and put them in a better situation than what they had before, if you need examples of this, read your Bible. They're all in there. All sorts of amazing stories where God takes people out of their comfort zone, asks them to do something that's not comfortable for them, and then He does amazing things through their life. Because it's oftentimes gateways to growth. I mean, even Job, who was found faithful in God's sight, was tested in ways that we could, we could never imagine. We look at his life in hindsight, and we still wonder how he made it through. Yet God was growing Job. He was blessing him, and even more knowledge of who God was. So we must remember that what we see as difficult and disappointing circumstances are oftentimes gateways to growth. I mean, this, is, this has been my, how I ended up in this pulpit period is a testament to this. I, I was not called at a young age to be a, a gospel preaching minister. If you'd have asked me when I was, when I was a, a young Jonathan Davis, hey, what is it that you're going to do with your life? It, I can tell you that being a minister of the gospel would have been way down on the totem pole. Preaching weekly or uh, at least a few times monthly, pastoring a church, being, being, being paid by a church to be able to, to minister and pastor to it would have been way down the totem pole. But I can walk you through the exact steps where God has led me to this place. And I'm thankful that He's been able to do that. Because I would have never gotten here on my own. I grew up just an hour from here. I grew up an hour from here. I lived in North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, for 28 years before I moved to Northern Virginia. And not once did I ever come to Jacksonville, North Carolina. Not once. Ever in those years of growing up. It is not a destination place. You did not end up here by accident. You did not end up here because you said, you know what, I'm going to go to Jacksonville, North Carolina. That's where I want to go. You know what I'm saying? Like we are near the beach, but it's not a destination place for us, right? You are here because God enacted steps in your life. And circumstances in your life that brought you to this place, this time, this day. Right? And we trust the sovereignty of God. We trust that He is doing way more than we could ever ask or imagine in us. And sometimes, sometimes He just uses those difficult and disappointing circumstances that, he may, that may be gateways to growth for us. That He may grow us and use us as ministers of the gospel. So my second point is this. Christians have an awesome privilege to bring joy to their city. Christians have an awesome privilege 
to bring joy to their city. Acts chapter 4, I mean Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered, look at what they did. They were scattered. Did they go hide in homes? Did they go hide under rocks? Good answer. That's right. They didn't. They went about preaching the Word. They preached the Word. Philip, who was one of the deacons that was assigned. This is not Philip the Apostle. This was Philip, one of the deacons that was appointed in Acts chapter 6. You can read that at a later time. He went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many were paralyzed or lame. Were uh, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And look at what happens as a result of what Philip has done by bringing the gospel to this city, to the, to Samaria. There was much joy in that city. You see, what's remarkable about this, or what, what's, what's even remarkable about what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth, like even for the apostles to hear that would have been revelatory. It would have been a true revelation because Samarians were viewed in a really negative light. Matter of fact, if you were called a Samaritan, it was a negative connotation. But if they were naming names, they were calling names, and they called you a Samaritan, you'd be like, what? Calling me a Samaritan? How dare you? You see, Jewish Christians would have thought there was no way the gospel would go to Samaria. There's no way the gospel's going to the Samaritans. You see, they were considered unclean, But in the eyes of these early Christians, if Philip can take the gospel, and he can take the gospel to to Samaria, then the gospel can go anywhere. That was that was would have been what was in their mind. And we will see as Acts progresses that that it will go from the Jews, it will go to the Samaritans. And it will ultimately go to the Gentiles, those who are no Jewish to sin at all. See, Samaritans were, they were half, what were considered half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. So because of the diaspora back in 722 B.C., many of the Jews were scattered among Gentile nations, and they intermarried with those who were Gentile. And they, they became, the Samaria, Samaria became a part of that. These Samaritans were, were basically half-Jews, and half Gentile, and Jews hated them wholly. And so it was an insult to be called a Samaritan. This would not have been fertile ground to go plant a church, by the way. Philip, Philip was not looking for the most fertile ground to go and start a new church. But Philip was faithful in preaching the word. But it was not just the word that he was preaching. It was also word and deed. Look at what he was doing. He said, He was scattered 
as those who were scattered went about preaching, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He proclaimed, he exclaimed, he used his mouth, he uttered words to them that, about Christ. And he gathered a crowd. And with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they, they heard him, they saw signs that he did. I mean, unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice. He was casting out demons. And he was healing paralyzed and lame people. So much so that there was actually joy in the city because of Philip. See, it came in word and deed. We cannot have one without the other. The word is proclamated out, but people see our deeds. Faith without works is what? Dead. We bring word and deed, and that's what Philip is doing here. He's bringing word and deed to these people. And because of what he's doing, because of what God's doing through him, through the Spirit that is living inside of Philip, as he preaches the Word, there is joy in that city. Now, I don't expect today that you would go about this city healing lame people and casting out demons. Like I don't, I don't expect that to happen this day and time. But in, Ga- in Galatians 5, one of the fruits of, of having the Holy Spirit is joy. Right? It is It is joy. So as Christians, we should be exceedingly joyful. When the wise men were, saw the star above Jesus, we'll, we'll probably, uh, I'm sure at some point in time, you'll read this in the book of Matthew as we come upon, uh, as we come upon Christmas here in a, few, in, a, in a few weeks, right? But when, when, when the wise men saw the star that was above Jesus and they, they knew where they were going, It says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great... Would you think they were joyous? I would think so. And like the wise men, we need to rejoice exceedingly with great joy over our own salvation. For Christians, there is nothing that should bring us more joy to our lives than knowing that we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is what gives us joy in this world and gives us hope for the future. And an overflow of that joy is it should pour out from us into the lives of others. We bring the Word. We proclamate the Word. We we witness the people. We evangelize the lost. We are like Philip. We bring the good news. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and what He has done in our own life. And then that breaks its way out into how we exercise it indeed. And so we had this awesome privilege of, of bringing joy to the city, of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. How can, we, how can we bring joy to our city? I'll give you a few examples. Number one, we bring them the gospel. We bring them the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that very gospel that has changed our lives as, uh, as Christians has transformed us from, a, from, from a, a person who had no love for God at all to a person that now through Christ Jesus his death, burial, and resurrection I can't think of anything I'd I'd rather think about and and be about than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way you can bring joy to to the city is through orphan care. 
You imagine if Pillow Church of Jacksonville were uh, to, to, to go into uh, the realms of foster care throughout Onslow and, and Pender and Carteret and some of the other counties that are around here and, and, and were to uh, uh, just end the uh, need, for, um, need for any of that foster care because we've actually brought them into our homes. How much joy that would bring to the city by just eliminating foster care altogether because they're in our houses, because we love orphans. The, the pure religion is that we look after orphans, that we take that seriously and that we want to bring joy to the city and joy to orphan children to bring them into our homes. How about mercy ministry? Where we care for those who can't care for themselves. That's mercy ministry. That we look after those, we help those who are in need. We we see a need and meet it. Like we say this all the time, as a, as as, a, as especially from here in the pulpit. Like you see a need, you meet it. It's easy. You see someone suffering, you go help them. You see someone in a trial, you go help them. But we have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. You want an easy one? Here's a really easy one. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not very easy though, is it? Or we do it more often. It's actually pretty hard. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's this great book that's called Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, just a, a really... It's, it's based on a, a true story. The writer is someone who uh, has, has done this, this idea of of, of loving your neighbor well and put it into a book form for us. So I'd recommend this book to you. Gospel, the Gospel Comes with a House Key. One of the, uh, is Rosario Butterfield is the, is the author's name. But one of the amazing things about them and her and her husband and their family is that their house is always open to their neighbors. Always. They fix a meal every night expecting that neighbors will come and eat with them. Their house is always open. Neighbors coming in at all times, all throughout the day, the house is always open to their neighbors. Guess what else is open to their neighbors? The gospel. By opening doors to food, to hospitality, to loving their neighbors well, they have now have a platform for the gospel. So we should be doing this. This is ways that we can, and we have the awesome privilege to bring joy to our city through some of these ways. And there's others, and you can talk about those, but... We should be thinking about as we've been changed and transformed and as we have this gospel proclamation, this thing that transforms our own hearts and minds and lives, that we should bring joy to our city as a result of it. Third point, this will cover a larger passage of Scripture. Your heart must be right before God. Third point, your heart must be right before God. Verses 9 through 24. Your heart must be right before God. There was a man named Simon. He had previously practiced magic in the city. He amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Man, going around just claiming that you're great. Like, well, that's a new level of. Pridefulness, sure, right? So he, was, he amazed the people, saying that he himself was somebody great. But, because of that, they all paid attention to him. 
from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. So they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, this is the Samaritan people that Philip had witnessed to, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, this would have been a shock to them, by the way. A shock. Even though Jesus had promised that the good news would go to the people of Samaria, this still would have been a shock to them. They sent Peter and John to verify, to validate, to, to give, um, to make sure that it's really happened. And so they came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Lord Jesus. So they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, let, me, let me break here for a second, okay? Because, because there's, a, there's a little bit of, of, of knowledge that we need to know about Acts. Especially Acts 1 through 10. Acts 1 through 10 is kind of a transitional period, uh, a transitional period in history. Okay, so from the Old Testament, dis, Old Testament dispensations, from, from what we see in the Old Testament as it's written out through prophets and law and history and all those things, as we break into the New Testament, as we see Jesus come on as a new covenant, um, and then we see the establishment of the church, there are some extreme things happen that are not normative. Okay? They're not normal in the life of a church. So Acts 1-10 through 10 has some kind of extreme things that happen in it that are not normative for the church. One of those is an, a, a difference in um, what happens at, 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 as, as a coming on of the Holy Spirit. So as we saw in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit come in an exceptional way, right? The Holy Spirit just didn't indwell these people. That He came in an exceptional way as tongues of fire, Right? I mean, uh, and, and laid on their, and sat on their, on their shoulders, right? And we see that imagery in Acts chapter 2. So we see that the Holy Spirit has come upon, the promised Holy Spirit by Jesus has come in an exceptional way to those who were gathered together, that 120 that were gathered up in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. In the same way, we're going to see the extreme example here where for some reason the, the Holy Spirit does not fall on those new believers who were in Samaria. Why? Well, I believe it's because that God wanted to show that the gospel had gone forth to the Samaritans. To this people that, that were not supposed to receive it, right? If, if you look at the Jewish culture, however, the gospel is, it can go to anyone now because of Jesus Christ. No longer the temple that we have to go to. Jesus is the, He is the temple. Right? Through His body, we come to know who God is. And so this happens here. We read this and we go, man, how come this is... Do we have to be baptized by, by, by Jesus in water as we'll see today? We get to celebrate two baptisms today. We'll see people go under the water through immersion and come back up, identifying themselves with Christ. Do we have to have that baptism? And then over here separately, do we have to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is no. 
No, because once you get past Acts chapter 10, or we see in Acts chapter 11, we see that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes at the time of conversion. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12. We see it in Romans, uh, I think it's Romans um, 9 we see it as well. And uh, where, where, the, where the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens at the time of conversion. However, this is not the last time that we will see this happen in Acts chapter 8. We'll see this actually when the Gentiles... So when the gospel goes to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, when he calls Peter up and says, hey, it's time for you to go to the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles need to hear the gospel. We'll see a separate event where the Holy Spirit comes in a separate way for them as well. So we see that the gospel comes to the Jews, the Holy Spirit comes to the Jews, to the Samaritans, and now to the Gentiles. So that's just an instruction. Helpful to see because there's much confusion over, hey, we should have a separate time for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, we shouldn't. This is a transitional period where exceptional things are happening. Now, even, even as we see in Philip, as he, as he is healing and casting out demons, I mean, for the most part, we don't see that in our churches today. All right, so just sidebar there. Now, This is verse uh, 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Say, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray for the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing out of what you have said may come upon me. And so these Samaritans that we see in verse 9, that as they are impressed with Simon, who is considered great, they stop being impressed with Simon. And in verse 11, they become enamored with Jesus. They stop being impressed with Simon and became enamored with Jesus because something greater had come. So this man is the power of God that is called great, verse 10 says, but something greater had come and that was Jesus Christ who is greater. You see, Simon desired something more than Jesus. Simon desired power. As someone who had gone about and made himself, made himself great, named himself great by doing sorcery and magic and some of those things, he wanted the power that the, that the apostles had, that disciples had, that Philip had, as they were casting out, as the Holy Spirit was coming upon believers. I want that power. So he offered to buy it. Just give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter gave some rebuking words. May your silver perish with you. So this begs the question for us. Do we desire something greater than Jesus? 
Do I desire something greater than Jesus? Do I desire to have power amongst my peers? Do I desire to be more well-known and well-liked than others that are, that are around me? Maybe I'm using Jesus as, something, as to get to something else. And my question would be, is your heart right before God? This was the question. This was what Peter called out in Simon. So Simon here is a false convert. The church took him in. They accepted him. They even, they even baptized him. And yet, here we see that Peter tells him, you need to repent. That the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. What is your, the intent of your heart this morning? Is it to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? As we were brought here on this earth to do? Or is it to gain something else in your life? Simon is a warning to us. There are many people in our churches who are here not because they love God, not because they have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, because they're seeking, but because they're seeking something else, some sort of favor maybe that God can give them, some sort of answer to their prayer that they've been seeking that they can't find anywhere else. And I would say to you, repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is nothing that you can do to gain the salvation of God found in Jesus Christ. It is only by grace through faith in Him. Matthew 7 gives us a, a phenomenal warning, but a very humbling warning. Listen to this. Not everyone, this is Jesus talking, not everyone says to me, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not, we did we prophesy in your name. I mean, we were casting out demons. We were doing mighty works in your name. We look at all these things that we were doing in your name, Jesus. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Like, I'm going through life, I'm doing all these things, God. Look at all these great things that I'm doing, yet Jesus does not reside. The Holy Spirit has not changed us. Just as the person who never thinks about God, hates God, despises God, will spend eternity apart from God. So will the person that dawns the door of our churches, comes every Sunday but does not have the Spirit of Jesus living inside of them. There's no separation. So like Stephen, like all the people who killed the prophets before, not like Stephen, but like Stephen told uh, to those people whom he preached to, 
And as, as He told them that, hey, you killed, your, your people killed all the prophets that came before you. And now you're going to kill me. You're going to find yourself on the wrong side of history. And I'm telling you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find yourself on the right side of history that you may spend eternity with Him. And that's what Peter's saying here. That is what he's saying to Simon. Listen, you need to repent that, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the God, you are bitter over the fact that you cannot do the things that we do. You're bitter over it. You're in the gall of bitterness. And you're in the bond of iniquity. That means that, that you, are, you, you, you are desiring after sin. Sin has a hold of you in a way that you, cannot get, uh, that you cannot get away from it unless the Lord do something through His Spirit in your life. And one of the reasons why I, I truly believe Simon was not a Christian who was what we would call backsliding, right? He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come to me, may come upon me. Christians, you have access to Jesus Christ through prayer. You have access. You don't have to ask somebody else to pray for you. You have access. So you don't have to pray for someone to come and, hey, pray for me that this doesn't happen. No, you pray yourself. You fall on your knees before Him and pray that God would take away your iniquity. And He will remove this sin as far as the east is from the west. So point number three is this. Uh, that, that was this. Your heart must be right before God. Your heart must be right before God. So um, let me give you a few markers here as, as we've got to move on. Um, we must, as, as, we got, as we look through um, what, how do we know a true Christian? How we know someone that's repented and believed for the God? Well, the, the Bible says that they bear fruit. Like you bear fruit. Our, our lives are marked by a change in who we were to now who we are in Christ. So, so those fruits of the Spirit that I mentioned earlier when I was talking about joy, they are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you, if you have these things in your life as markers of, of who you are in Christ, these, this, is, this is what it means to bear fruit. And Galatians goes on to say that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. It means that you are wanting to mortify sin. That you, you are desiring Jesus and the Gospel more than we desire the things of the world. That we love God. We, we truly love our neighbor. We hate sin. And we seek to mortify it, to kill it as soon as it rears its head. When trials come, we persevere. We, we remain steadfast in the Lord no matter how hard it gets. You see, the people whom Jesus truly condemned were those who were like, who were like Simon the sorcerer. They were unrepentant hypocrites. They were proud. They were greedy and they were self-righteous. This is who Jesus rebuked. This is who Peter rebukes. So is your life marked by these, by, by these fruits of the Spirit? Or is your life marked by being hypocritical, saying one thing and doing another? 
pridefulness, greed, self-righteousness. Is this, this the markers of your life? If it is, you, you should ask the Lord to forgive you. That you repent and ask the Lord to help you through it. My last point is this, and I'll have to move relatively quickly. Man. Point number four, guide someone to Jesus. Guide someone to Jesus. Now when Jesus had testified and spoken the word of the Lord there, uh, they returned to Jerusalem. This was Peter and John. They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. He rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian and a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seating in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. And Philip ran. He didn't walk. He didn't stroll. He ran to him. Heard him reading Isaiah and the prophet and said, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? You get it? He said, How can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is sure is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they, they came to some water, and the, the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, uh, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The people, so you being here this morning, as I said earlier, is not by happenstance. Like you just didn't end up in Jacksonville, North Carolina. With that also said, the people that are in your life, the people that you have the, uh, the uh, opportunity to speak to, the opportunity to share the good news with, were not there by accident. We have the awesome privilege of being around, usually being around people every day who do not know the good news of the gospel. And so we must be faithful. It doesn't always work out like Philip where, the, where, the, where, where God sends a messenger and says, hey, you should go to this desert road. There'll be a guy there. He'll be reading Isaiah and he'll want you to guide him through it. You should do that. Like, it's not always that clear, right? Like, we wish it was. I wish that somebody had a little like, sign over their head that said, hey, I, I'm ready to hear the gospel. Can you, can you come tell it to me? But that's not the case. So what does that mean for us? That we must be faithful in proclamating the gospel in, in, in various ways to various people all throughout. Some are going to be hardened. Some are going to be going through trials and tribulations and we can speak into that. But some are going to be ready to receive the good news of the gospel. Like a woman on a mountaintop in, 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 in Bali, Indonesia who I would have never met otherwise were it not for the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? 
But we have this awesome privilege to share the good news. So I wanted to share this number with you because I think it's helpful as we close. I'm going to ask you musicians to go ahead and just come up uh, as, as, I, as I close this. There are over 17,000 people groups in the world today. 17,000. 7,000 of those people groups remain unreached. 7,000 people groups. That's 46% of our society remains unreached. That's almost half of all people groups remain without the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it can make it to the Samaritans through faithful evangelists and missionaries, it can make it to the farthest regions of our globe. The gospel, that is. So if the gospel can make it to Samaria, a place that the Jews never thought it would go, it can make it to the utter ends of the world, to villages all over this, this globe that we can't even imagine their people even being people at. The gospel can go to it. 7,000 unreached. We must be faithful in our sending. There is no one that is beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us be faithful in our going, our sending, but even in our here and now that we will be faithful in the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're, you find yourself like, man, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I might be like Simon. Would you speak to someone here this morning that's a member of this church? You can come find me or Paul or any of these guys up here and ladies that are, that are up here um, uh, just involved in our service this morning. Or just find a member, just somebody, maybe somebody you came with. Like, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. I'm not sure that I haven't used the church for something more than what it is. I'm not sure that Jesus is greater than anything else in my life right now. I think I have some other things that are in the way. Let us help you walk through that as we, as we just share together. And as we get ready to sing, would you stand? And I'll pray for us, and we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word that's given to us. May it be a, a warning to us, but also an encouragement that we get to, we get to share this good news every day. Uh, Lord, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay and let me
So we move now into our time of response here. Um, it's a time of reflection, of remembrance for our great Lord's awesome sacrifice on the cross. This is a time where we need to reflect and examine whether our heart is right before Christ, whether we see Him as our Lord and Savior, whether we are submitting ourselves to Him, and uh, we recognize our need uh, for a Savior from our sins. So this afternoon, it's a beautiful thing.